Welcome back to The Foreign Desk. I'm Lisa Daftari. Ever since President Biden was running for office, he promised to get back into the Iran nuclear deal, which President Trump pulled out of. Since coming into office, President Biden and his administration have tried every which way to strike a deal with the mullahs in Iran. And no matter how far they stretched, they still couldn't come to an agreement. So they went back to the negotiating table in Vienna time and time again, hoping to get that deal. But over the last eight months, the Iranian people have filled the streets of their nation in protest. And even though the catalyst of this round of protests was the death of the 22-year-old Masa Amini, who was beaten for not wearing her hijab properly, this movement is not about that. It's not about the price of gas or bread or eggs. It's not about one candidate over the other. It's not even a feminist movement, as many like to call it even though Iranian women have shown the world the definition of courage. It's purely about one thing, freedom through regime change. And while the Iranian protesters and political prisoners have been executed, young female students have been chemically poisoned, mothers have been arrested for screaming for their children's release outside of Iranian prisons. The U.S. had created some space between itself and the brutal Iran regime until we found out more. Yes, the Biden admin has always shied away from supporting regime change, but it seemed that the violence and the rogue nature of Iran's regime, not just about human rights, but about capturing oil tankers, supporting terror proxies in the region, and continuing with the enrichment of uranium, you'd think Washington would steer clear of normalizing relations with such a regime. Until we found out more. Now, it appears it's not a question of if, but a, qu a question of when the U.S. will announce an actual, another nuclear deal with Iran's regime. So I call upon the only person who can perhaps make sense of any of this, a good friend of the Foreign Desk and this show, and our favorite repeat guest, Dr. Walid Fars. In addition to being... Uh, an internationally recognized analyst and author called upon by the majority of news outlets to shed light on foreign policy topics. Dr. Ferris is also the co-secretary of the Transatlantic Parliamentary Group and foreign, a former foreign policy advisor to Donald Trump. He's the author of several books on the region, including some of my favorites, Future Jihad, The War of Ideas, Winning the War Against Future Jihad, uh, The Coming Revolution, The Lost Spring the Choice, which compares the foreign policies of Trump versus Obama and Biden, and of course, most recently, and pertaining to our segment today, Iran, an imperialist republic and U.S. policy, which is now available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. For anyone who's interested in Iran policy and really making sense of this, I know we're going to cover a lot of it in the next uh, half hour or so, but I encourage you all to pick up a copy of the book and to read the uh, genius and, and, and analysis of Dr. Ferris Walid, as always, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lisa. It's always a pleasure and an honor and a necessity to be on your show so we could, you and I both, translate events on the ground into analysis for the public to understand what's going on. Thank That's you again. Absolutely. So thank you. I know you, you're jet lagged and you're here under so many different circumstances, but I, I really appreciate you making the time. And as I said, I don't think anybody can break it down the way you can in terms of connecting the dots. And that's what we always talk about on this show is that people, you know, consume news from different, uh, different outlets, different types of news. You see the headlines. 
but they're not contextualizing it for us. They're not connecting the dots for us. They're not going deeper to tell us what the consequences of U.S. foreign policy is. And that's why I have brought you here today. I want to start with this shift that I explained. Basically, you know, we we thought the Biden administration had taken a step back from the nuclear deal, or at least on the surface, it appeared that Mm. way. Did their policies really ever change or were they just working behind the scenes? Can you explain what has happened in the last eight months with regard to the Biden administration? Lisa, you were right by using one term, which is, uh, you know, that we were told that there was a shift that's not the same as under Obama. That was a policy. And the policy of the early stage of the Biden administration is to say that we have nothing to do with the previous administration. We're going to change. We're going to make sure that Iran's regime is not going to have a nuclear weapon. Reality is that they did the same thing and even worse by allowing more money, we'll talk about it in details, to be sent to Iran. You know, they argued that this is a deal done by the Obama administration. We have to stick with that deal that the $150 billion that went to the regime, which the regime has used, as you know, Lisa, to strengthen their militias, to buy more weapons. We said, okay, that was a commitment by a previous administration. But this administration continues in the same direction, funding of militias from Iraq to Syria to Hezbollah, to the Houthis in the south, uh, in in Yemen uh, is on. And of course, as you just said in the intro, they are developing the strategic weaponry system. Uh, I know you and I discussed it twice at least over the past few months. What the regime is doing right now is using that money, and we are still sending the money, the administration that is, to develop what I have called the Iranian dome. You know, Israel has a dome that protects it from Hezbollah or from Hamas. Now, Iran, with the help of China, of Russia, and there's a different context for that, is building a dome, and that dome will be a very advanced system of anti-aircraft missile system, of new interceptors that they are buying from Russia with that money, precisely so that they can deter any action by Israel by the United States. Nothing has really changed. And Iran has taken advantage, as, uh, as you know, from having China supporting them now more than ever since the Ukraine war, Russia as well, but also from the neutralization of what they consider you know, that deal of normalization between Tehran and, uh, and Saudi Arabia. So they've taken advantage of all of that. And in the midst of it, we learn, you and I and many among us who are following, that the Biden administration is actually asking third parties, like South Korea, uh, Oman, but now Iraq, where we are in our force, to release money to the Iran regime. And you know, and I don't want to even... Yes, that uh, a majority of Iranian Americans, of Middle Eastern Americans, of experts actually in Washington know that that money is not being used to, for humanitarian issues. It's been used to develop their weapons further and further. I mean, do the people who are in charge not know this, Walid? I mean, look, yesterday we had what you exactly just stated. On the foreign desk, we had the story of the U.S. officially confirming that it allowed Iraq to release $2.7 billion uh, of its debts back to the Islamic Republic. And they claim this is for humanitarian effort. We both know that is not going to any humanitarian effort or any Iranian inside Iran who may desperately and direly need that help. We know exactly where that money is going. It's going where all the other money went. Um, Do the people in charge not know this? Why are they doing this? Why talk about sanctions and then release billions of dollars to a murderous regime? 
look at that. What, what, what a strong point. Let me just start by saying, Lisa, that uh, the Iranian regime has been lobbying. So they're not, the status quo has been lobbying both in Europe, just came back from the European Parliament, and in Washington with the administration to continue with that drive, i.e. in answering your question, to relentlessly, stubbornly keep sending money to the regime. And you asked, but are the officials aware? Yes, they are aware. I, I think our agencies know that. I mean, it's in, even in the news. They don't need to pay anybody to discover it. It is a political decision. Now, here's the problem. Number one, this is illegal because in 2018, and you mentioned something about it, the previous administration canceled U.S. participation in the deal. So it is illegal for Washington, for anybody in Washington to release money, to order releasing the money to the Iranian regime, which is on our terror list. So that, I, I, I mean, I'm calling on Congress, wait a minute, you need to intervene. You need to hold hearings. There is an action that is illegal, I mean, at a certain level. Second, basically, why? Why? Because behind those decisions is a pressure coming from those in America and in, in Europe, in the West in general, who are profiting from the Iran deal. The Iran deal is a transaction. Right. I, I'm going to be very honest and brutal as I was in my book. We are releasing money to the Iran regime. Don't you think that the Iran regime is going to kind of return some of that money to those interests? How would the Iran lobby works? Well, it's also funded by the same money we are sending to the Iran regime. It's very bad. And that's why it needs a balance. It needs Congress to question the administration and to make sure that we are not sending money to start with. And if we did, that no money is coming back to acquire influence within the United States. Right. So it's, it's absolutely mind boggling how foreign policy is, is used to fill the pockets of, of those who are in a position of power so much so that it's worth it for them to break laws and to jeopardize U.S. national security, both here at home and, and, and abroad. Uh, it just seems, Waleed, and I want to break this down into you know, several different questions, but let's start with the issue of, of Saudi Arabia. I think we were all waiting for Saudi Arabia to, to announce a normalization agreement with Israel. We thought, well, the Abraham Accords happened naturally. We're seeing the coming together of the Saudis and the Israelis. They have many interests, obviously the first of which is that they want to curb Iran's regime, right? Saudi yeah. Arabia, a sworn enemy of Iran's regime. They've been observing each other and fighting each other through proxy war for the last four decades. And all of a sudden, we are all um, baffled by the news that they are now normalizing relations with Iran's regime and a deal brokered by none other than China. Yeah. How did this happen? And most importantly, what's going on through the minds of the Saudis who are so close to normalizing relations with Israel and all of a sudden jump ship and go to Iran's regime? That's all happened in Washington, D.C. We all remember, you and I had many discussions under the Trump administration about how because of the Abraham Accord, Israel and the UAE and Bahrain and many other countries, including obviously Morocco, which is so important for that process, moved forward, not just with the peace process. There was no real war between the UAE and Israel. It was a state of war, but with collaboration, with cooperation. I mean, the UAE, Bahrain and Israel uh, have concluded agreements on joint security, meaning Israel was able to project Power, military power in the Persian Gulf. The UAE also were backed by Israeli military industry, so on and so forth. The Saudi kingdom was 
one step short of entering that agreement, but of course we had a change. We had a change of policy and foreign policy in Washington DC as soon as the new administration formed in 2021, one month after they removed the Houthis who are pro-Iranian militia in Yemen from the terror lists. So the, the Saudis said, what is going on? The Houthis are a national security threat against us. Then immediately after the Biden administration started to pressure the Saudis to remove their forces from Yemen. I mean, Yemen to them is like, is like Cuba to us. It's, it's very close, even closer than, than Cuba. So there was this relentless pressure by the Biden administration from within obviously the Iran uh, deal lobby and also the remnant of the teams under the Obama administration who also had a position against the Saudis and the UAE. So now after the e Ukraine war, uh, President Biden went to Saudi Arabia and, said, and told MBS and told everybody, you have to produce more at a you know, lower price, meaning you have to sacrifice. And the Saudis told them and the other Arabs told the administration, okay, we may consider this, you are our allies, we do this, but why are you supporting Iran? I mean, they had, they had a legitimate question. We go to them, we pressure them to make sacrifices. And at the same time, we release the militia that is basically attacking them. And then also at the same time, we go to Iran. So I think the Saudi leadership is not against the Abraham Accord, but is now in a position where they have to defend their own national interests and national security interests. They are not entering an alliance with Iran. They are going into a status quo with Iran, waiting for what? for a political change or for a different direction in Washington, DC. Now, that means that, yes, I do not expect that the Saudi will come in public and tell the Israelis, let's go and sign. But I think underneath they are talking. Uh, so now Saudi Arabia, unfortunately for Israel, will not open its skies, its space, airspace, to Israelis if they need to go use that airspace to go to the Gulf, yeah. Yeah, that was actually my next question, which you anticipated yeah. so well, uh, which is, you know, what, what are the, the chances of, of there actually being um, a, a, you know, are the two mutually exclusive, basically? Could the Saudis now normalize relations with Israel, which you say is not going to happen on the surface? On the surface won't happen. Underneath the surface, they are talking to each other. I mean, we know it from, from direct sources, but it's a status quo that's going to last technically until the a change, meaning until 2025. Right. Now, the Iranians are telling the Saudis, that's something new, don't do any move towards Israel in cooperation with Israel. We will not accept that you will have an agreement with the Israelis. We will cancel our agreement with you. So now you are the Saudis. You found a new status quo, meaning you want to avoid that Iran will unleash its ballistic missiles on the Saudis in the absence of an American ally. And now Iran is not alone. Iran has Russia and China and joined uh, maritime exercises taking mm -hmm. place in the Gulf. I mean, this the whole context is different. And okay. the United States administration refused to support the Saudis or the Emiratis. It forced them actually to take that position at this point in time. You know, uh, what does this what even mean? I mean, you look at the region, um, you know, th does this really mean that Saudi Arabia is basically given up on curbing Iran's regime. So if you can't beat them, join them. And then we're seeing because of this normalization, um, basically they're bringing Syria into the fold. And now yeah. it's, it's almost a reverse of the Abraham Accords where you have everyone with Iran against the West 
rather than the other way around. And of course, Israel um, being an extension of, of the United States, although at the Biden White House, it doesn't seem that way. I have even, I have even more concerns than just that. And I'll come back to that point, which is which has to do with our forces, our Navy. Remember, we are in the Gulf, partially and mostly to protect our allies, Arab allies, the whole Kuwait, Bahrain, uh, Qatar to a certain level, and then, of course, the, uh, the Saudis from Iran. But if these countries have kind of so normalized, I'm not saying becoming allies, but normalized with the Iranians, what is the goal of our forces now in the Gulf? It's a big question, and I urge really Congress to, to look into this, because now the Iranians are inviting the Russians and the Chinese to come and exercise in the Gulf. So if the Iranians are deploying their fleet, we are there, and the Saudis have included in, uh, Saudis and Iranians have included in that agreement that they will not allow the use of their coasts, their airspace, and their lands to any action and it's mutual, meaning Iran is not going to allow anybody to attack Saudi, of course, because they control the terrorists. They could tell the terrorists, not now. But the Saudis will be now facing a very difficult situation, which is they may have to tell the United States and our allies, you're not using our airspace and our land and ports. So that is going to raise the issue of what are we doing there? What was the fate of our bases? Who are we protecting anymore? It's, it's a very challenging time. And we were driven to that situation by this policy that is, in my view, reckless by this administration, unfortunately. How, how irreversible are these? I mean, what are, what are the long-term consequences of this foreign policy for the region as you see it? Well, here we're going to bring probably uh, the factor that you are really expert in it, which is the change inside Iran. Because from my understanding, I think the Saudis and the, and the other allies in the region are banking on, okay, we're not going to confront Iran head on but there are other forces inside Iran that are confronting the regime. So Saudi Arabia did not commit to go against the Iran opposition. It committed to play the Switzerland role. We are mm-hmm. the banks who are developing. We do trade with, we do trade with Iran. We do trade with, uh, with others, including possibly with Israel without recognizing. So that's where they are repositioning themselves. But those, the forces that can change everything is the power of the Iranian revolution. So that will be the game now. The unfortunate matter, though the Iranian revolution is still on, it's still back burner, front burner, the administration is not doing anything to support the Iran uh, uprising, the Iran demonstration. Even the issue of, of women. I mean, you were right in the introduction when you said, this is not just about women equal rights. The Iranian women wants equal rights for everybody and freedom from everybody for everybody in Iran. And that's what the administration is not doing. They're saying, oh, this is a matter of women's struggle only. No, it is a matter of freedom for everybody. And of course, the biggest element is our, our women. So that would be a matter of change. Plus the fact that in what, year and a half from now, we're gonna have elections. And as we have seen over the past 12 years, actually since 2009, every time we have a different uh, administration, we have a different foreign policy. That has not been the case for many, many decades. Foreign policy was national security of the United States. Now, every time there is a change, the new administration goes dramatically in a different direction. And I would say this has started with the Obama administration in one eye. 
pointed to something so interesting, and that is the um, you know ignoring of human rights and all the things that the West champions. And I'll give you a better example of that is at the United Nations, right? Oh. Um, they are you know so quick to point fingers at uh, you know aggressors around the world, but yet. Every day they're giving the Iran regime a different honor. They recently, just in the last couple of weeks, made them the head of the social forum. And also they will sit as VP for the entire year, starting in September for the United Nations General Assembly. I mean, these are huge honors. Which nations are voting for them? I mean, how is this happening that the world, and I, when I say world community, I say it loosely, I think it's the, the powers that be in the West, the Europeans, the, the United Nations, the Biden administration, so many of these um, so-called rights groups that mm -hmm. are completely ignoring 80 yeah. million people and the majority of, of 80 million people who are out on the streets and saying they're murdering. And it, ironically, juxtapose that with the month in which Iran's regime had a record number of executions. These are executions. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Problems. Yeah. You know, it's not just Iran, but Iran is the biggest chunk of struggle against uh, fascism in this case. It's also Iraq, the Kurds, Syria, uh, Lebanon, the Caesar's Revolution. So it's not ignoring only Iran. It's ignoring half of the Middle East. Unfortunately, this policy is showing that they have no interest in democracy or freedom or human rights or minorities for that matter in, in the Middle East. It's, it's really a shocking open attitude that they are not ready to support the just causes that they are raising everywhere around the world. You know, our State Department is going around Africa promoting wokeism. And then you have women and minorities inside Iran struggling every day against the regime and there is nothing in terms of reaction. And my answer is very, very simple. It's this is part of the deal. There is a package. And in my book, as you know, I made the case that this is not just a deal, it's a transaction. And that transaction is we fund that regime, we have an interest in that funding, and the regime basically will return the favor in multiple ways to some corporations. I'm sure many in Europe have already had that favor, but also a promise of a favor with, with, with the United States. And the problem here, Lisa, is that without even signing the deal, right? Now there are reports that they are about to sign, about to sign. Forget about that. They have been implementing the deal without signature since last year by, by ordering other countries that are our allies to open the valve, give them the cash, give them the cash. So now we are at a crossroad here in Washington, D.C., with regard our foreign policy is not now uh, expressing the will of the American people. You know, um, before I let you know, I mean, it's, it's a huge topic, and we can tackle it in the last uh, 10 minutes or so, maybe a little less than that. Um, it's regarding you know, China and Russia, right? Mm -hmm. So the, the, the strategy would have been much easier on those who want to curb Iran's regime to say they've been isolated. So even if the United States is, is throwing them a bone, it's going to take them some time to really find trade partners and to really, um, you know, gain that robust kind of reputation on the, on the global stage and on the economic stage. Now, China and Russia are making that much easier on Iran's regime, so much so that the United States is an afterthought. And we saw that in the Saudi-Iran deal. We're seeing that all over with uh, Iran selling weapons to Russia, and we're seeing them being used in Ukraine. 
There is a lot to follow here. Can you tell us just a bit about the relationship between Iran, China, Russia, and why this nexus that has been created is so disastrous for the United States? Well, number one, it is not really news that Russia and China are supporting Iran. It is that they have changed that support from minimal to maximum at this point in time. And for each one of the two countries, there were different reasons. Uh, Russia, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna raise, if you allow me for one minute, there's something between Russia and Iran that may happen. We're gonna break the news here mm-hmm. a little bit. That is very important and could be even more dramatic. So basically, Russia supported Iran, and then Iran, in, 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 you know, in return, uh, produced those drones and helped the Russians in their efforts in, in Ukraine, so on and so forth. That's, that was an alibi, because Russia may need that production, but it needed as a reason to do something that we have not expected in the past. You know, the whole challenge about the Iran deal, the Iran nuclear deal, is to stop Iran from producing nukes. Because if they produce nukes, they change, they change the geopolitics of the region. What may happen, and I have warned about it, is that the first nuke that Iran may obtain is not going to be the product of its own factories, its own enrichment or non-enrichment. They may get that nuke. They may get a tactical nuke from their allies, from China and Russia. What happened 48 hours ago? That should be a, a, an important warning. Russia moved tactical nukes to Belarus. So think about it. What would be the next move that Russia could do and Russia and China could do? is to move tactical nukes to Iran and then claim that Iran now is, and I'm quoting a possible situation, under Russia and China nuclear umbrella. They will create an, a reason that you know, the United States is doing this, doing that. So now we are including Iran under our nuclear umbrella. What does that mean? That neither Israel or America can anymore go and destroy that weapon short of engaging with Russia and China. That matter didn't happen in the past because they knew that the United States under the Trump administration or a non-Obama administration would go in with Israel and the Arabs because the Arabs were still with us and then take care of the problem. Now things have changed and it's becoming dramatic. So my conclusion is beware when China and Russia or one or the other will extend the nuclear umbrella, that huge umbrella over Iran, then the world will have changed. Just because I have a couple of minutes and I'm, I'm very much interested in your uh, opinion about this, how much of this can be reversed if there's a different president in, in office in 2025? First of all, there need to be a different administration now because this one is not going to change. We understand. So people ask me in the Middle East, will this administration still change? I think it's difficult because they've committed, this bureaucracy have committed, unless there is a some sort of <clears throat> biblical size change on the ground, but a new administration is not just enough. There need to be a new administration with a new policy because we had a previous administration. It did some efforts, it stopped Iran, it put pressure on Iran, but we need to be double effective in doing something that has not been done by all administrations, including the ones that I have supported, which is supporting the Iran revolution. That's the only path. That's the only path to create. We don't want to do the Iran the uh, regime change, but let the, um, the, the Iranian people do the change in Iran. 
So, but for them to do it, we need, first of all, to change our narrative. Yes, we are committed to support the Iranian public, the Iranian people against that regime, and then support it really in real terms, logistically, politically, diplomatically. Because other than that, we're gonna remain for decades in that struggle with a regime that is growing stronger and stronger, unfortunately. Stronger and stronger. Help them. Uh, yeah, and on the, on the one hand, they say they don't uh, involve themselves in regime change. But we had at the Foreign Desk this week a historical piece looking at Khomeini, the architect of the Iran Revolution in 1979, his advisors, his assistants, his people meeting with Carter's people oh, yeah. before the revolution happened. So we do involve ourselves in regime change, but only when we want to. That's and true. That but that's for a different day, uh, Waleed. We'll definitely have you back. I'm going to show you this book one more time, encourage you all to pick up Dr. Waleed Ferris's latest book on Iran, particularly my followers inside Iran and those who support them in the United States and Europe. Pick up a copy of this book. He makes the most sense. He breaks it down so well and so easily. And thank you for joining us once again. You're always a, a favorite on this program and always welcome to come back. Thank you for your analysis. Thank you, uh, Lisa. And hopefully we come back again. Of course. And for those of you who'd like to sign up for our weekly podcast, go to youtube.com slash Lisa Daftari. You can subscribe there or you can get the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And also, if you'd like to subscribe to our daily top 10 email to get the best news headlines of the day in your inbox each morning, go to foreigndesknews.com. Thank you so much and see you all next time.